This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. For most of Catholic Ireland in 1916, Easter was a holiday, time off work to be spent with family and friends. In the politically charged atmosphere of the time, however, work was never too far off for those in Irish volunteer circles. Phyllis Morkin was holding a dinner party on Easter Sunday with some of her close family and friends, many of whom were senior figures in the volunteers. These included the 25-year-old commandant of the 1st Battalion, Ned Daly, and her newlywed husband, Eamon Morkin, Daly's assistant quartermaster. Phyllis Morkin was herself an active member of Cumann as were the other women present. The atmosphere was heavy with worry about the planned rising, which had been cancelled at the last minute by Owen McNeil. The party was broken up when the men were called away to an urgent meeting, not returning until five in the morning. They didn't have much time to rest. Ned changed into uniform, and in about half an hour, my husband, Ned and Jim O'Sullivan left the house, all in uniform and fully armed. They did not tell me where they were going. Ned just said I was to stay in the house until I got my orders. I was very worried, but not in the least frightened. Instructions came through for Cumann members to mobilise at the Black Church near Parnell Square in civilian clothing. The orders were not to stand around in groups. We were all in mufti. Uniform would have attracted too much attention. We could not wear even a badge. All day, or rather all afternoon, we walked about and hearing in the distance a good deal of shooting. During that time, all sorts of rumours were going around. People coming and telling us that O'Connell Street was strewn with dead lancers. We waited on and presently an order came from Daly to dismiss and report again the following morning. It was then about five or six o'clock. After briefly visiting her husband at Daly's stronghold in Church Street, Morgan stayed that night with a fellow member of Cumann as the fighting gripped the city. She asked us to remain the night with her. It was a dreadful night, and for the first time I got really frightened. We, of course, could not sleep, just listened to the shooting and watching the sky lighting up every moment. The whole city looked to be on fire. She crossed the city to return to Church Street, where the Cumann were needed to provide medical care to wounded volunteers. At this time, the British military were in the centre of the city, and when I got to the College Green, there did not seem to be a living soul about. All I saw was a dead horse in the centre of the street opposite the Bank of Ireland. I paused for a minute, then said a prayer and ran across the street. I'd been told that Madame Markovitch was with the Citizen Army in Stephen's Green. I saw no life there either, but felt more comfortable knowing they were near. Again, I saw a dead horse outside the Shelburne Hotel. When I arrived, Daly told us to prepare an emergency hospital, so we went around to all the nearby houses with some of the volunteers and asked for material and bedclothes. We had no difficulty getting those things we required as everyone was most willing to help. In a short time, we had a big ward ready with the dressings, cut and waited for our first patient. My first patient was the late Liam Clark, suffering from gunshot wounds in the face. I realised then that we'd no stimulants of any description in the place and no change of clothes. So I approached Commandant Daly and told him. He gave me permission to go to my home at Aaron Key. We at that time had two public houses at the corner of Queen Street. When we arrived at my home, we collected a lot of brandy and whiskey and all the shirts and socks we could lay hands on. We were about an hour or more in the house and when we left, we found the British military had taken up positions outside and at all the crossings. 
I got a shock because I had in a raincoat hanging on my arm several rounds of ammunition, which I'd got in the roll-top desk in the dining room. Again, we were lucky. We smiled and chatted with the soldiers at the crossings, and they did not question us. I got rid of the ammunition at the top of Brunswick Street. By this time, the fighting was becoming extremely fierce around Church Street. Phyllis attempted to return to her post at the hospital, but the area was barricaded by British soldiers. On Wednesday, I hoped to go to my home. It was near Church Street, and there was always a chance some of the men might call. But when I arrived there, I found the British military were in possession, and for three weeks they remained there and would not admit me. When they eventually left, and all our men were either in prison or dead, I arrived at my home and found they'd made a wreck of our house. They broke everything they possibly could, fired shots at the mirrors and smashed every pane of glass in the house. They'd left nothing, only heavy furniture, which was hard to remove. My piano, we found, stuck halfway down the stairs. No clothes of any description did they leave. Silver, jewellery, china. Even my engagement ring, which I'd locked away, as we could not wear jewellery on duty. The shops were bereft of everything and even the cellars were looted. The rising was over and Phyllis's dinner party on Easter Sunday must have seemed like an age away. Having spent the week witnessing the suffering of the rising firsthand, her life was now completely changed. She had no idea what had happened to her husband for a month after Easter week while she attempted to rebuild her life. The first information I got of my husband was on the 21st of May when I saw a list of prisoners in the paper and to my great relief, his name was amongst those in Nutsford Jail just outside Manchester and they were being allowed a visitor. So I announced to my friends I was going across to see him. I crossed the following night and word must have gone around that I was going because at the boat there were about 20 people all with parcels and letters for me to take to their menfolk. I arrived at the jail gate on Friday morning and was admitted at 10 o'clock and escorted to a waiting room. I stood at the window looking out in the square and after a short time I saw, marching along in single file, half a dozen men. I could not see my husband at first and the only way I recognised him was by his walk. He was still in uniform but had grown a beard. We were so pent up at seeing each other again that I think we scarcely spoke at all. The first question he asked me was what the people at home thought of them and he was overjoyed when I told him that the whole country was with them. Eamon was transferred from Nutsford to Frongoch internment camp in Wales while Phyllis had a baby in October 1916. Both mother and child were in very poor health after the birth and Eamon was granted parole for a week to visit them. Both recovered and Eamon was eventually released at Christmas in 1916. The young family relocated to Burr, County Offaly, where both continued their volunteer and come man activities. For other less well-known stories from this interesting period in Irish history, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening.